The Privy Counselor by Anton Chekhov At the beginning of April in 1870, my mother, Klavdia Aripovna, the widow of a lieutenant, received from her brother Ivan, a privy counselor who lived in Petersburg, a letter in which, among other things, this passage occurred. My liver trouble forces me to spend every summer abroad, and as I have not at the moment the money in hand for a trip to Marienbad, it is very possible, dear sister, that I may spend this summer with you at Kochuevko. On reading the letter, my mother turned pale and began trembling all over. Then an expression of mingled tears and, and laughter came into her face. She began crying and laughing. This conflict of tears and laughter always reminds me of the flickering and sputtering of a brightly burning candle when one sprinkles it with water. Having reread the letter, mother called together all the household, and a voice broken with emotion began explaining to us that there had been four Gundasov brothers. One Gundasov had died as a baby, another had gone into the army, and he too was dead. The third, without offense to him, be it said, was an actor. The fourth, the fourth has risen far above us, my mother brought out tearfully. My own brother, we grew up together, and I am all of a tremble, all of a tremble, a privy counselor, a general. How shall I meet him, my angel brother? What can I, a foolish, uneducated woman, talk to him about? It's fifteen years since I've seen him. Andrinshenka, my mother turned to me. You must rejoice, little stupid. It's a piece of luck for you that God is sending him to us. After we had heard a detailed history of the Gundasovs, there followed a fuss and bustle in the place, such as I had been accustomed to see only before Christmas. The sky above and the water in the river were all that escaped. Everything else was subjected to a merciless cleansing, scrubbing, painting. If the sky had been lower and smaller and the river had not flowed so swiftly, they would have scoured them too with brick dust and rubbed them too with tow. Our walls were as white as snow, but they were whitewashed. The floors were bright and shining, but they were washed every day. The cat bobtail. As a small child, I had cut off a good quarter of his tail with a knife used for chopping sugar. That was why he was called Bobtail. Was carried off to the kitchen and put in care of Anisha. Fedka was told that if any of the dogs came near the front door, God would punish him. But no one was treated so roughly as the poor sofas, easy chairs, and rugs. They had never before been so violently beaten as on this occasion in preparation for our visitor. My pigeons took fright at the loud thud of the sticks and were continually soaring into the sky. The tailor, Spiridon, the only tailor in the whole district who ventured to work for the gentry, came over from Novostroivka. He was a hard-working, capable man who did not drink and was not without a certain fancy and feeling for form, but was nevertheless an atrocious tailor. His work was ruined by hesitation, the idea that his cut was not fashionable enough made him alter everything half a dozen times, walk all the way to the town simply to study the dandies, and in the end, dress us in suits that even a caricaturist would have called outré and grotesque. We cut a dash in impossibly tight trousers, 
and in such short jackets that we always felt quite abashed in the presence of young ladies. This spiridon spent a long time taking my measure. He measured me all over, lengthwise and crossways, as though he meant to put hoops around me like a barrel. Then he spent a long time noting down my measurements with a thick pencil on a bit of paper, and ticked off all the measurements with triangular signs. When he had finished with me, he set to work on my tutor, Yegor Alexeyevich Plobodimsky. My unforgettable tutor was then at the stage when young men watch the growth of their mustache and are critical of their clothes, and so you can imagine the religious awe with which Spiridon approached him. Yegor Alexeyevich had to throw back his head, straddle his legs like an inverted V, lift up his arms, let them fall. Spiridon measured him several times, walked around him during the process like a lovesick dove rounding its mate, going down on one knee, bending double. My mother, weary, exhausted by her exertions and headachey from ironing, watched these lengthy proceedings and said, Mind now, Spiridon, you will have to answer for it to God if you spoil the cloth, and you will never have any luck if the clothes don't fit. Mother's words threw Spiridon first into a fever, then into a perspiration, for he was convinced that the clothes wouldn't fit. He received one ruble, twenty kopecks, for making my suit, and for Pobdemsky's, two rubles. We provided the cloth, the lining, and the buttons. The price cannot be considered excessive, as Novostroyevka was about six miles from us, and the tailor came to fit us four times. When he came to try the things on, we squeezed ourselves into the tight trousers and jackets full of basting threads. Mother always frowned contemptuously and expressed her surprise. Goodness knows what the fashions are coming to nowadays. I am positively ashamed to look at them. If brother were not used to Petersburg, I would not get you fashionable clothing. Spiridon, relieved that the blame was thrown on the fashions and not on him, shrugged his shoulders and sighed, as though to say, there is no help for it. It's the spirit of the age. The excitement with which we awaited the arrival of our guest can only be compared to the strained suspense with which spiritualists await from minute to minute the appearance of a ghost. Mother went about with a sick headache and was continually melting into tears. I lost my appetite, slept badly, and did not do my lessons. Even in my dreams I was haunted by an impatient longing to see a general that as a man with shoulder straps and an embroidered collar sticking up to his ears, and with a naked sword in his hands, exactly like the one who hung over the sofa in our drawing room, and glared with terrible black eyes at anybody who dared to look at him. Povodimsky was the only one who felt himself in his element. He was neither terrified nor delighted, and merely from time to time, when he heard the history of the Gunasal family, he said, Yes, it will be a pleasant to have someone fresh to talk to. My tutor was looked upon among us as an exceptional nature. He was a young man of twenty, with a pimply face, shaggy locks, a low forehead, and an unusually long nose. His nose was so big that when he wanted to look close at anything, he had to put his head to one side like a bird. To our thinking, in the whole province there was not a cleverer, more cultivated, a more fashionably dressed man. He had left high school a year before he was due to graduate, and had then entered a veterinary college, 
from which he was expelled before the end of the first semester. The reason for his expulsion he carefully concealed, which enabled anyone who wished to do so to look upon my instructor as an injured and to some extent mysterious person. He spoke little, and only on intellectual subjects, ate meat on fast days, and looked with contempt and condescension on the life around him, which did not prevent him, however, from taking presents, such as suits of clothes from my mother, and drawing funny faces with red teeth on my kites. Mother disliked him for his pride, but stood in awe of his brains. Our visitor did not keep us long waiting. At the beginning of May, two cartloads of big trunks arrived from the station. These trunks looked so majestic that the drivers instinctively took off their hats as they lifted them down. There must be uniforms and, and gunpowder in those trunks, I thought. Why gunpowder? Probably the conception of a general was closely connected in my mind with cannon and gunpowder. When I woke up on the morning of the 10th of May, nurse told me in a whisper that uncle had arrived. I dressed rapidly and washing after a fashion, flew out of my bedroom without saying my prayers. In the vestibule, I came upon a tall, thick-set gentleman with fashionable whiskers and a foppish-looking overcoat. Half dead with religious awe, I went up to him and, remembering the ceremonial mother had impressed upon me, I scraped my foot before me, made a very low bow, and craned forward to kiss his hand, but the gentleman did not allow me to kiss his hand. He informed me that he was not my uncle, but my uncle's footman, Piotr. The appearance of this Piotr, who was far better dressed than Pobinimsky or me, filled me with utter astonishment, which, to tell the truth, has lasted to this day. Can such dignified, respectable people with stern and intellectual faces really be footmen? And what for? Piotr told me that my uncle was in the garden with my mother. I rushed into the garden. Nature, ignorant of the history of the Gudasov family and my uncle's rank, felt far more at ease and unconstrained than I. There was a clamor going on in the garden, such as one only hears at fairs. Masses of starlings flitting through the air and hopping about the walks were noisily chattering as they hunted for maybugs. There were swarms of sparrows in the lilac bushes, which thrust their tender, fragrant blossoms straight in one's face. Where everyone turned, from every direction came the note of the oriole and the shrill cry of the hoopoe in the kestoil. At any other time, I should have begun chasing dragonflies or throwing stones at a crow, which was sitting on a low rick under an aspen tree, with its blunt beak turned away. But at that moment, I was in no mood for mischief. My heart was throbbing, and I felt a cold sinking in my stomach. I was preparing myself to confront a gentleman with shoulder straps, a naked sword, and terrible eyes. But imagine my disappointment. A thin, dapper little man in white silk trousers and with a white cap on his head was walking beside my mother in the garden, with his hands behind him and his head thrown back, every now and then running on ahead of my mother. He looked quite young. There was so much life and movement in his whole figure that I could only detect the treachery of age when I came close up behind and saw beneath his cap a fringe of close-cropped silver hair. Instead of the 
staid dignity and stolidity of a general, I saw an almost schoolboyish nimbleness. Instead of a collar sticking up to his ears, an ordinary light blue necktie. Mother and uncle were walking in the alley talking. I went softly up to them from behind and waited for one of them to look round. What a delightful place you have here, Claudia, said my uncle. How charming and lovely it is. Had I known before that you had such a charming place, nothing would have induced me to go abroad all these years. Uncle stooped down rapidly and sniffed at a tulip. Everything he saw moved him to rapture and curiosity, as though he had never been in a garden on a sunny day before. The queer man moved about as though he were on springs and chattered incessantly, without allowing Mother to utter a single word. All of a sudden, Pobodimsky came into sight from behind an elder tree and at the turn of the alley. His appearance was so unexpected that my uncle positively started and took a step backward. On this occasion, my tutor was attired in his best cape with sleeves, in which, especially from the back, he looked remarkably like a windmill. He had a solemn and majestic air, pressing his hat to his bosom in Spanish style. He took a step toward my uncle and made a bow such as a marquis makes in a melodrama, bending forward a little to the side. I have the honor to introduce myself to your high excellency, he said aloud, pedagogue and tutor of your nephew, formerly a student of the veterinary institute and a nobleman by birth, Pobodimsky. Such civility on the part of my tutor pleased my mother very much. She gave a smile and waited in thrilled suspense to hear what clever thing he would say next. But my tutor, expecting his dignified address to be answered with equal dignity, that is, that my uncle would say, hmm, like a general, and hold out two fingers, was greatly embarrassed and abashed when the latter laughed genially and shook hands with him. He muttered something incoherent and cleared his throat and walked away. Come, isn't that charming? Just look, he has put on his cape and thinks he's a very clever fellow. I do like that, I swear to God. What youthful aplomb. What life in that cape. What boy is this? He asked, suddenly turning and looking at me. Oh, that is my Adrushenka, my mother introduced me, flushing crimson. My, my consolation. I made a scrape with my foot on the sand and dropped a low bow. Oh, a fine fellow, a fine fellow, muttered my uncle, taking his hand from my lips and stroking me on the head. So, your name is Androsha. Yes, yes, hmm, I swear to God. Do you do your lessons? My mother, exaggerating and embellishing, as all mothers do, began to describe my achievements in the sciences and the excellence of my behavior. And I walked around my uncle and, Following the ceremonial laid down for me, I continued making low bows. Then my mother began throwing out hints that with my remarkable abilities, it would not be amiss for me to get a government scholarship in the Corps of Cadets. But at the point when I was to have burst into tears and begged for my uncle's patronage, my uncle suddenly stopped and flung up his hands in amazement. My goodness, what's that? he asked. Tatiana Ivanovna, the wife of our steward, Fyodor Petrovna, was coming straight toward us 
She was carrying a starched white skirt and a long ironing board. As she passed us, she looked shyly at the visitor through her eyelashes and flushed crimson. Wonders will never cease. My uncle filtered through his teeth, looking after her with friendly interest. You have a fresh surprise at every step, sister. I swear to God. She's a beauty, said my mother. They chose her as a bride for Fyodor, though she lived over 70 miles from here. Not everyone would have called Tatiana a beauty. She was a plump little woman of 20 with black eyebrows and a graceful figure, always rosy and attractive looking. But in her face and in her whole person, there was not one striking feature, not one bold line to catch the eye, as though nature had lacked inspiration and confidence when it created her. Tatiana Ivanovna was shy, bashful, and modest in her behavior. She moved softly and smoothly, said little, seldom laughed, and her whole life was as regular as her face and as flat as her sleek hair. My uncle screwed up his eyes, looking after her and smiled. Mother looked intently at his smiling face and grew serious. And so, brother, you've never married, she sighed. No, I've not married. Why not? asked Mother softly. How can I tell you? It just happened so. In my youth, I was too hard at work. I had no time to live. And when I longed to live, I looked round and there I had fifty years on my back already. It was too late. However, talking about it is depressing. Mother and uncle both sighed at once and walked on, and I left them and flew off to find my tutor, that I might share my impressions with him. Pobodimsky was standing in the middle of the yard, looking majestically at the heavens. One can see he is a man of culture, he said, twisting his head round. I hope we shall get on together. An hour later, mother came to us. I am in trouble, my dears, she began, sighing. You see, brother has brought a valet with him, and the valet, God bless him, is not one you can put in the kitchen or in the passage. He must have a room to himself. I can't think what I'm to do. I tell you what, children, couldn't you move out somewhere to Fyodor's lodge, for instance, and give your room to the valet? What do you say? We gave our ready consent, for living in the lodge would be a great deal freer than in the house, under mother's eye. It's a nuisance, and that's a fact, said Mother. Brother says he won't have dinner in the middle of the day, but between six and seven, as they do in Petersburg. I am simply distracted with worry. By seven o'clock the dinner will be ruined. Really, men don't understand anything about housekeeping, though they have so much intellect. Oh, dear, we shall have to cook two dinners every day. You will have dinner at midday, as before, children, while your poor old mother has to wait till seven for the sake of her brother. Then my mother heaved a deep sigh, bade me try and please my uncle, whose coming was a piece of luck for me, for which we must thank God, and hurried off to the kitchen. Pobodinsky and I moved into the wing the same day. We were installed in a room between the entry to the steward's bedroom. Contrary to my expectations, life went on just as before, drearily and monotonously. In spite of my uncle's arrival, and our removal to new quarters. We were excused from lessons on account of the visitor. Pobodinsky 
who never read anything or occupied himself in any way, spent most of his time sitting on his bed, with his long nose thrust into the air, thinking. Sometimes he would get up, try on his new suit, and sit down again, to relapse into contemplation and silence. Only one thing worried him, the flies, which he mercilessly swatted with his hands. After dinner, he usually rested, and his snores were a cause of annoyance to the whole household. I ran about the garden from morning to night, or sat in the room making kites. For the first two or three weeks, we did not see Uncle often. For days together, he sat in his own room working, in spite of the flies and the heat. His extraordinary capacity for sitting, as though glued to his table, produced upon us the effect of an inexplicable conjuring trick. To us idlers, knowing nothing of systematic work, his industry seemed simply miraculous. Getting up at nine, he sat down at his desk and did not leave it till dinner time. After dinner, he set to work again and went on till late at night. Whenever I peeped through the keyhole, I invariably saw the same thing, my uncle sitting at the desk writing. The work consisted in his writing with one hand while he turned over the leaves of a book with the other. And strange to say, all of him was in constant movement, his leg swinging as though it were a pendulum, his head nodding in time to his whistling. He had an extremely careless and frivolous expression all the while, as though he were not working, but playing tic-tac-toe. I always saw him wearing a smart short jacket and a jauntily tied cravat, and he always smelt, even through the keyhole, of delicate feminine perfume. He only left his room for dinner, but he ate little. I can't make my brother out, mother complained of him. Every day we kill a turkey and squabs on purpose for him. I make a compote with my own hands, and he eats a plateful of broth and a bit of meat the size of a finger and gets up from the table. I begin begging him to eat. He comes back and drinks a glass of milk. What is there in that, in a glass of milk? It's no better than dishwater. You may die of a diet like that. If I try to persuade him, he laughs and makes a joke of it. No, he does not care for our fair, poor dear. We spent the evenings far more gaily than the days. As a rule, by the time the sun was setting and the long shadows were lying across the yard, we, that is, Tatyana, Ivanovna, Pobremsky, and I, were sitting on the steps of the ledge. We did not talk until it grew quite dark. And indeed, what is one to talk of when every subject has been talked over already? There was only one piece of news, my uncle's arrival, and even that subject was soon exhausted. My tutor never took his eyes off Tatyana Ivanovna's face, and frequently heaved deep sighs. At the time, I did not understand those sighs. I did not try to fathom their significance. Now they explain a great deal to me. When the shadows merged into one thick mass, the steward, Fyodor, would come in from shooting or from the fields. This Fyodor gave me the impression of being a fierce, even terrible man, the son of a Russianized gypsy from Izium, swarthy-faced and curly-headed, with big black eyes and a matted beard. He was never called among our Kochuevka peasants by any name but the devil. And indeed, there was a great deal of the gypsy about him apart from his appearance. He could not, for instance, stay at home, went off for days together into the country or into the woods to shoot. He was gloomy, ill-humored, 
taciturn, was afraid of no one, and recognized no authority. He was rude to my mother, addressed me familiarly, and was contemptuous of Pobodimsky's learning. All this we forgave him, looking upon him as a hot-tempered and nervous man. Mother liked him because, in spite of his gypsy nature, he was ideally honest and industrious. He loved his Tatyana Ivanovna passionately, like a gypsy, but this love took in him a gloomy form, as though it cost him suffering. He was never affectionate to his wife in our presence, but simply rolled his eyes angrily at her and twisted his mouth. When he came in from the fields, he would noisily and angrily put down his gun, would come out to us on the steps and sit down beside his wife. After resting a little, he would ask his wife a few questions about household matters and then sink into silence. Let's sing, I would suggest. My tutor would tune his guitar and in deep deacon's bass strike up down in the level valley. The singing began. My tutor took the bass. Fyodor sang in a hardly audible tenor, while I sang soprano in unison with Tatyana Ivanovna. When the whole sky was covered with stars and the frogs had left off croaking, they would bring in our supper from the kitchen. We went into the lodge and sat down to the meal. My tutor and the gypsy ate greedily, with such a noise that it was hard to tell whether it was the bones crunching or their jaws. While Tatyana Ivanovna and I scarcely managed to eat our share. After supper, the lodge was plunged into deep sleep. One evening, it was at the end of May, we were sitting on the steps, waiting for supper. A shadow suddenly fell across us. An uncle stood before us, as though he had sprung out of the ground. He looked at us for a long time, then struck his hands together and laughed gaily. An idol! They sing and dream in the moonlight! It's charming, I swear to God. May I sit down and dream with you? We looked at one another and said nothing. My uncle sat down on the bottom step, yawned, and looked at the sky. A silence fell. Pobodimsky, who had for a long time now been wanting to talk to some person, was delighted at the opportunity and was the first to break the silence. He had only one subject for intellectual conversation, Epizootic diseases. It sometimes happens that after one has been in an immense crowd, only some one countenance of the thousands remains long imprinted on the memory. In the same way, of all that Pobodinsky had heard during his six months at the Veterinary Institute, he remembered only one passage. Epizootics do immense damage to national economy. It is the duty of society to work hand-in-hand hand with the government in waging war upon them. Before saying this to my uncle, my tutor cleared his throat three times, and several times, in his excitement, wrapped himself up in his cape. On hearing about the epizootics, my uncle looked intently at my tutor and made a sound between a snort and a laugh. Upon my soul, that's charming, he said scrutinizing us as though we were lay figures. This is actually life. This is what reality is bound to be. Why are you silent, Pelageya Ivanovna? He said, addressing Tatyana Ivanovna. She coughed, overcome with embarrassment. Talk, my friends. Sing. Play. Don't lose time. You know, time. 
The rascal runs away and waits for no man. I swear to God, before you have time to look round, old age is upon you. Then it is too late to live. That's how it is. Pelageya Ivnovna. We must sit still and be silent. At that point, supper was brought in from the kitchen. Uncle went into the wing with us, and, to keep us company, <clears throat> ate five curd fritters and the wing of a duck. He ate and looked at us. He was touched and delighted by us all. Whatever silly nonsense my precious tutor talked, and whatever Tatyana Ivanovna did, he thought charming and delightful. When, after supper, Tatyana sat quietly down and took up her knitting, he kept his eyes fixed on her fingers and chatted away without ceasing. Make all the haste you can to live, my friends, he said. God forbid you should sacrifice the present for the future. There's youth, health, fire in the present. The future is smoke and deception. As soon as you are twenty, begin to live. Tatiana dropped a knitting needle. Uncle jumped up, picked up the needle, and handed it to Tatiana with a bow. For the first time in my life, I learned that there were people in the world more refined than Pobodimsky. Yes, my uncle went on. Love, marry, do silly things. Foolishness is a great deal more vital and healthy than our straining and striving after a meaningful life. Uncle talked a great deal. So much that it bored us. I sat on a chest listening to him and dropping to sleep. It distressed me that he did not once all evening pay attention to me. He left the lodge at two o'clock, when overcome with drowsiness, I was sound asleep. From that time forth, my uncle took to coming to the lodge every evening. He sang with us, had supper with us, and always stayed on till two o'clock in the morning, chatting incessantly, always about the same subject. His evening and night work was given up, and by the end of June, when the privy councillor had learned to eat mother's turkey and compote, his work by day was abandoned too. My uncle tore himself away from his desk and was drawn into life. In the daytime, he walked up and down the garden, whistled, and interfered with the men's work, making them tell him various stories. When his eye fell on Tatyana Ivanovna, he ran up to her and, if she was carrying anything, offered his assistance, which embarrassed her dreadfully. As the summer advanced, Uncle grew more and more frivolous, volatile, and abstracted. Pobodimsky was completely disappointed in him. He is too one-sided, he said. There is nothing to show that he is in the very foremost ranks of the service. He doesn't even know how to talk. At every word, it's, I swear to God. No, I don't like him. From the time that my uncle began visiting the lodge, there was a noticeable change both in Fyodor and my tutor. Fyodor gave up going out shooting, came home early, sat more taciturn than ever, and stared with particular ill-humor at his wife. In my uncle's presence, my tutor gave up talking about episodics, frowned, and even laughed sarcastically. Here comes our little bantam cock, he growled on one occasion when uncle was coming into the wing. I put this change in both of them to their being offended with my uncle. My absent-minded uncle mixed up their names, and to the very day of his departure had not learned to tell my tutor from Tatyana Ivanovna's husband. Tatyana herself he sometimes called Nastasya, 
sometimes Pelageia, and sometimes Yevdokia. Touched and delighted by us, he laughed and behaved exactly as though he were in the company of small children. All this, of course, might well offend young men. It was not a case of offended pride, however, but as I realize now, of subtler feelings. I remember one evening I was sitting on the chest, struggling with sleep. My eyelids felt glued together, and my body, tired out by running about all day, drooped sideways. But I struggled against sleep and tried to look on. It was about midnight. Tatiana, rosy and meek as always, was sitting at a little table, sewing a shirt for her husband. Fyodor, sullen and gloomy, was staring at her from one corner, and in the other sat Pobodemsky, snorting angrily and retreating into the high collar of his shirt. Uncle was walking up and down the room, thinking. Silence reigned. Nothing was to be heard but the rustling of the linen in Tatiana Ivanovna's hands. Suddenly my uncle stood still before Tatiana and said, "'You are all so young, so fresh, so nice. You live so peacefully in this quiet place that I, I envy you. I have become attached to your way of life here. My heart aches when I remember I have to go away. You may believe in my sincerity.' Sleep closed my eyes and I dropped off. When some noise waked me, my uncle was standing before Tatiana, looking at her with a softened expression. His cheeks were flushed. My life has been wasted. I have not lived. Your young face makes me think of my own lost youth, and I should be ready to sit here watching you to my dying day. It would be a pleasure to me to take you with me to Petersburg. What for? Fyodor asked in a husky voice. Oh, I should put her under a glass case on my desk. I should admire her and show her to other people. You know, Pelageya Ivanovna, we have no women like you there. We have wealth, distinction, sometimes beauty. But we have not this true sort of life, this healthy serenity. My uncle sat down facing Tatiana and took her by the hand. So you won't come with me to Petersburg? He laughed. In that case, give me your little hand, a charming little hand. You won't give it? Come, you miser, let me kiss it anyway. At that moment, there was a, the scrape of a chair. Fyodor jumped up and with a heavy, measured step went up to his wife. His face was pale gray and quivering. He brought his fist down on the table with a bang and said in a hollow voice, I won't allow it. At the same moment, Pobodemsky, too, jumped up from his chair. Pale and angry, he went up to Tatyana, and he, too, struck the table with his fist. I won't allow it, he said. W w what's the matter? asked my uncle in surprise. I won't allow it, repeated Fyodor, banging on the table. Uncle jumped up and, and blinked faint-heartedly. He tried to speak, but in his amazement and alarm could not utter a word. With an embarrassed smile, he, he shuffled out of the lodge with the mincing step of an old man, leaving his hat behind. When a little later, my mother ran into the lodge, Fyodor and Pobodemsky were still hammering on the table like blacksmiths and repeating, I won't allow it. What has happened here? asked mother. Why is my brother taken ill? What's the matter? 
looking at Tatiana's pale, frightened face and at her infuriated husband. Mother probably guessed what was the matter. She sighed and shook her head. Come, quit banging on the table. Leave off the odor. Why are you thumping? Yeager, Alexeyevich, what have you got to do with it? Kobodimsky was startled and confused. Fyodor looked intently at him, then at his wife, and began walking about the room. When mother had gone out of the lodge, I saw what for long afterwards I looked upon as a dream. I saw Fyodor seize my tutor, lift him up in the air, and thrust him out the door. When I woke up in the morning, my tutor's bed was empty. To my question where he was, nurse told me in a whisper that he had been taken off early in the morning to the hospital as his arm was broken. Saddened by this news and remembering the scene of the previous evening, I went out of the doors. It was a gray day. The sky was overcast, and there was a wind blowing dust, bits of paper and feathers along the ground. It felt as though rain was coming. People and animals looked bored. When I went into the house, I was told not to make such a noise with my feet, as mother was in bed with a migraine. What was I to do? I went outside the gate, sat down on the little bench there, and fell to trying to discover the meaning of what I had seen and heard the day before. From our gate there was a road which, passing the forge and the pool that never dried up, led to the highway. I looked at the telegraph posts, about which clouds of dust were whirling, and at the sleepy birds sitting on the wires, and I suddenly felt so dreary that I began to cry. A dusty bus crammed full of townspeople, probably going to visit the shrine, drove by along the highway. The bus was hardly out of sight when a light carriage drawn by a pair of horses came into view. In it was Akim Nikitich, the district police officer, standing up and holding on to the coachman's belt. To my great surprise, the carriage turned into our road and flew by me into the gate. While I was puzzled why the police inspector had come to see us, I heard a noise, and a troika came into sight on the road. In the carriage stood the chief of police, directing his coachman towards our gate. And why is he coming, I thought, looking at the dusty chief of police. Most probably Povodimsky has complained of Fyodor to him, and they've come to take him to prison. But the mystery was not so easily solved. The police officer and the chief of police were only forerunners. For five minutes had scarcely passed when another coach drove in at our gate. It dashed by me so swiftly that I could only get a glimpse of a red beard at the window. Lost in conjecture and full of apprehension, I ran to the house. In the vestibule, first of all, I saw Mother. She was pale and looking with horror towards the door, from which came the sounds of men's voices. The visitors had taken her by surprise at the height of her migraine. Who has come, mother? I asked. Sister, I heard my uncle's voice, will you send in something to eat for the governor and me? It is easy to say something to eat, whispered my mother, numb with horror. What have I time to get ready now? I am put to shame in my old age. Mother clutched at her head and ran into the kitchen. The governor's sudden visit stirred and overwhelmed the whole household. A ferocious slaughter followed. A dozen hens, five turkeys, eight ducks were killed. And in the confusion, 
The gander, the progenitor of our whole flock of geese and a great favorite of mothers, was beheaded. The coachman and the cook seemed frenzied and slaughtered birds at random, without distinction of age or breed. For the sake of some wretched sauce, a pair of valuable pigeons, as dear to me as the gander was to mother, were sacrificed. It was a long while before I could forgive the governor their death. In the evening, when the governor and his suite, after a sumptuous dinner, had got into their carriages and driven away, I went into the house to look at the remains of the feast. Glancing into the drawing room from the vestibule, I saw my uncle and my mother. My uncle, with his hands behind his back, was walking nervously up and down close to the wall, shrugging his shoulders. Mother, exhausted and looking much thinner, was sitting on the sofa and watching his movements with heavy eyes. Excuse me, sister, but this won't do at all, my uncle grumbled, wrinkling up his face. I introduced the governor to you, and you didn't offer to shake hands. You covered him with embarrassment, poor fellow. No, that will not do. Simplicity is a very good thing, but there must be limits to it, too. I swear to God. And then that dinner. How can one give such people food like that? What was that mess, for instance, that they served for the fourth course? Um, that was duck with sweet sauce, Mother answered softly. Duck! Forgive me, sister, but here I've got heartburn. I am ill. Uncle made a sour, tearful face and went on. It was the devil sent that governor, as though I wanted his visit. Heartburn, I can't work or sleep. I'm going to pieces. I can understand how you live here without anything to do in this boredom. Here I've got a pain in the pit of my stomach. My uncle frowned and strode more rapidly than ever. Brother, my mother inquired softly, what does it cost to go abroad? Oh, at least three thousand... I would go, but where am I to get the money? I haven't a copic. Heartburn. Uncle stopped, looked dejectedly at the gray overcast prospect from the window, and began pacing to and fro again. A silence followed. Mother looked a long while at the icon, pondering something, then began crying and said, Oh, I'll give you the three thousand, brother. Three days later, the majestic trunks went off to the station, and the privy councillor drove off after them. As he said goodbye to mother, he dropped a tear, and it was a long time before he took his lips from her hands. But when he got into his carriage, his face beamed with childlike pleasure, radiant and happy. He settled himself comfortably, blew a kiss to my mother, who was crying, and all at once I caught his eye. A look of the utmost astonishment came into his face. What boy is this? he asked. My mother, who had assured me that my uncle's coming was a piece of luck, for which I must thank God, was bitterly mortified at this question. I was in no mood for questions. I looked at my uncle's happy face, and for some reason felt fearfully sorry for him. I could not control myself, jumped in the carriage, and hugged that frivolous man, weak as all men are. Looking into his face and wanting to say something pleasant, I said, Uncle, have you ever been in a battle? Ah, oh, dear boy, Uncle laughed, kissing me. 
Oh, charming boy, I swear to God. How natural, how true to life it all is. Oh, I swear to God. The carriage set off. I looked after him. And long afterwards, that farewell, I swear to God, was ringing in my ears. End of The Privy Counselor by Anton Chekhov.